Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Hey everyone, quick reminder, we have a Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash hard to believe. You can get bonus content and a shout out on the show and all that good stuff. If you can't afford it, that's fine. I understand. It would be really helpful though if you head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star review. It really helps us grow. Thanks a lot and thanks for listening. A lot of people have asked me why, if on this show about belief and religion and so on, I haven't yet touched on the issue of death. And the answer is simple. I hate talking about death. I don't really talk about it in my classes pretty much ever. And yeah, I'll admit, I don't like thinking about death, and I guess if I had to place a bet on the nature of death, I'd err on the side of assuming it's oblivion. But I've wanted to talk about it, and I will again in the future for sure, but it had to be the right guest. Someone whose views on death and dying were both deeply philosophical and simultaneously non-threatening. And I found that in Fred Gruy. Fred is a board-certified chaplain with a Doctor of Ministry degree from the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, and he's an ordained Congregationalist minister working for Providence Hospice in Medford, Oregon. His interest in working with the dying began in the early 1990s with the death of his best friend who succumbed to AIDS. I'm pleased to welcome Fred to the show today. I'm John Brooks and this is Hard to Believe. Fred, it's great to have you, um, and thank you for thank you for joining me. John, it's great to be had. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and have you on the show is that you spend time writing and 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 talking and interacting with the broad concept of death, and it's and it's something that I hate talking about. Um, I am a real deathophobe, I guess you could say. Um, I don't like engaging with it, I don't like thinking about it, and I don't like talking about it, and I have a little bit of a hypochondriac streak as well, I guess, I guess you might say that. So I, I, I really kind of wanted to um, open myself up to it a little bit, and I, I read some of your writing and your bio, and you know, you sound like the sort of person who I could talk to about it and not feel incredibly threatened by, so if that, that makes you feel good. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your bio and your um, your sort of your faith journey, because one of the things that you are is an ordained minister. So um, if you could just indulge a little bit about how you got from where you're from to uh, where you find yourself now. Oh, golly. How long is how long is this? <laughs> you know, because, well, look, I so. All right. The, the quick down and dirty. Uh, let's see. I, I was born. Uh, my mother was Jewish by uh, culture or uh, ethnicity rather than a religion. Uh, she grew up in a time 
when uh, my mother and my grandmother were afraid to let anybody know they were Jewish because they were afraid of being ostracized. And that's not uncommon for many Jewish folks here in the United States. So while they had an ethnicity of being Jewish, they didn't necessarily practice the religion. Uh, my mom married uh, my dad, who was Catholic, and she converted to Catholicism when I was about two. So I was raised as a Catholic. And then uh, in the early days of the Catholic charismatic renewal in the early 70s, I had uh, uh, a charismatic or Pentecostal experience. I ended up becoming a charismatic and Pentecostal minister. I was a pastor for a short time, and I traveled as an itinerant uh, preacher well, over a lot of the United States and a lot of different countries, and uh, somewhat of a revivalist kind of a thing. And then uh, in the early, well, the yeah early two thousands, I just uh, things began to change for me, and I got to the place where I wanted to affirm, and just believed uh, in affirming same sex unions, and so I sought out a uh, a path where I could still be a Christian. And, uh, and hold to the things that are dear to me, but yet uh, be supportive of same-sex unions. So I uh, pursued uh, ordination in the United Church of Christ, which was a progressive uh, mainline group, and still am, uh, a UCC minister. And I also started my training to become a hospice chaplain. And so for the last 15 years, I've been uh, a hospice chaplain. I've been with about 3,000 folks that have passed away. It's an incredibly rich and rewarding job that I absolutely love. And when I started, I, I, I was a little bit like you, John. I mean, I was freaked out by death, didn't know what to do with it, didn't want to deal with it. Uh, but yet I had had a couple of experiences where it brought, where people that I loved died and going through that with them brought out the best aspects of me that I'd encountered. And I thought that was interesting. And so I pursued becoming a hospice chaplain. And uh, currently I read a lot, a lot of uh, Zen and Taoist literature. I, I know a fair amount of Judaism uh, and not so much on Islam or Hinduism, but I am somewhat of a religioholic. I like to read religious texts and I'm fascinated by them. And I'm still, uh, you know, I still consider myself a, uh, a devout Christian, and in many ways, still Pentecost. Pentecostal is something that happens to you. Uh, mm -hmm. It chooses you. You don't choose it. And so it was very experiential. And so that's very to the core of who I am. I've just simply been liberated of shoving my own beliefs on anybody else. And, and so I know what works for me, or I'm pleased with what works for me. And I'm interested in what works for other people without having to try to change them into the way I see things. And that's been a, a wonderful liberation for me. And I, I think for the people that I encounter. I want to just unpack something uh, early on in that, in that story, because <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in your biography doesn't strike me as one where you would end up um, a person who advocated for um, same-sex unions or had especially liberal views. Uh, I, I mean, coming from West Virginia and being raised Catholic and being a charismatic preacher, um, you know, the stereotype doesn't align with a progressive Christian, right? Um, right. 
uh, in favor of of uh, advocating for for same sex union, same sex marriage. Um, how did you do? You feel that you had a shift in your um, social perspective at some point, or were you always um, someone who was progressively minded, but living in this sort of um, not typically progressive landscape? Well, to be honest, I don't think of myself as progressive at all. I, in fact, most of the people that know me think I'm very conservative, and mm. I probably, you know, in many ways, I am. Uh, and realize when I grew up in West Virginia, uh, a Republican couldn't get elected for love nor money. Right. It was a, it was a blue dogs. It was a blue dog Democrat state. So Republicans never were elected when I lived there. So, but I think for many of us, I mean, for all, what happens is, is you meet people. Life happens, and you get involved in stories. There's one of my favorite. African proverbs is a line that says, we are not made of flesh and bones, we are made of stories. And so in the uh, early 90s, one of my dearest friends, a dear, dear brother that I just loved, one of my closest friends, uh, a fellow Christian, a charismatic evangelical Christian, uh, was diagnosed with AIDS. And he, uh, you know, in the early 90s, that was that freaked everybody out. Everybody was terrified. And and many of our mutual friends didn't know what to do with him. And, you know, I remember the day he confided to me, uh, you know, we were sitting in his kitchen, uh, his wife and he was married, had three teenage kids. But uh, and he had just gotten out of the hospital after suffering with pneumonia. And we were sitting on a bar stool in his kitchen. Our wives were out getting groceries or something. And he said, I got to tell you something. I said, what? He said, I got AIDS. And I can, re John, I can remember that moment like I was right there. It was late afternoon. The sun was yellowish coming in the windows. And I had no idea what to do. I could not believe it. And he told me he was gay and I loved him. And he was one of my closest friends. And so for the next three years, uh, we became very close as he was dying. Uh, for a while, he actually came to live with my wife and I uh, for, for work purposes. And, um, and I was with him to the, to the end when he died. I, and that journey uh, changed me. I mean, here was a guy that I trusted as much as I would trust anybody. And he loved Jesus as much as I loved Jesus. And he hated who he was. And I just thought, my God, how can this be that somebody that loves God and hates who they are, in what universe does that make any sense at all? I, I couldn't reconcile that. And I thought, you know, if he, it's just crazy to me. And so I just began to explore, you know, look, I, I've come to the place in my life, I, I've learned, I'm an older man now, I'm, you know, I'll be 69 later this year, and I've just learned life is damn hard. And if you can find somebody to love you and nurture you and help you feel safe and grow, who cares what sex they are? It's just, it, life is too hard to be alone. And so when you find someone, and, and, and how could a loving God be upset with that. So anyway, so I'm sure there are many of my former friends think I'm a heretic <laughs> and other people think I'm enlightened and who the hell knows I could be both. And it doesn't matter to me because I'm comfortable in my own skin and, and the God that I've come to know 
is certainly accept. I mean, is it certainly accepted a lot of the nonsense I've created? So I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Uh, so it just—it's nothing. I just want to fight about. I I want to affirm love and and nurturing and safety and and growth wherever I can. I think that's important to at least the God I've come to know. Plenty of people who experience what you experienced with your friend dying of AIDS. Um, especially at that time when it was just so traumatic and scary and unknown. And, and um, I can imagine that the response is nothing but a doubling down of a sort of rejection of, of, of death and an anger. Um, it sounds to me like this was one of the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the match that kind of lit the fuse for your, uh, pursuit of working with people who are who are dying and investing in people's deaths. Um, what what made you react that way? Why why was it a sort of an affirming thing as opposed to something that you um, carried with a kind of hostility and anger? And you know, a lot of people would just be like, I don't believe in God anymore. I, you know, there's, I can, there's a whole yeah. range of reactions, right? That are very normal uh, in that sort yeah. of circumstance. So what, what made your reaction your reaction? Well, I, I would say that in my language, it was grace it, because it came from without me, outside of me. It was not something that I feel I possessed. I, like I say, I can remember sitting on my buddy's bar stool in his kitchen and that moment froze and I was just overwhelmed with what I call grace. I, I felt God's love and presence fill the room. And I can remember getting up off my stool, walking over to my buddy and kissing him on the cheek and saying, you're my brother. I love you. We're going to go through this together. I don't care what you've done. I love you. And, and I knew that sort of came from without me. There's a, and I, there's a one of in in the years that have passed since of a, a, a line that I have fallen in love with is from the Greek play, and I know you have a theater background. The Greek playwright Aeschylus, who created the whole genre of, of tragedy, mm -hmm. and in his play Agamemnon, there is this line where he says, um, "He who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and even in our own." despite against our will comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. And I, I think there is just a grace that, that can come and it, it's not guaranteed, but in my case, it came to soften my heart rather than to close me down and make me mean and bitter and, and angry. And, and so I, I don't attribute it to anything of me at all, you know, it goes to the to the core of of my understanding of the divine and and how I relate to the to the divine. So, working in hospice um, and ministering to people who are who are dying, what does that actually mean? I, I you know, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure everybody listening knows what those words mean and yeah. uh, and and could have a vague sense of it, but like, yeah. what do you actually do? Has um, <laughs> <laughs> my boss asked me that quite quite often? About every two weeks on payday, what is it you do? You know, 
it's one of those things. It's so, John, it's the best job I've ever had in my whole life. I love what I do. And right now the thought of retiring is freaking me out because I don't know what I'd do with myself. But, and I only work three days a week, so it's not like, but you know, if you're at a cocktail party or somebody says, you know, what do you do for a living? You know, and I, I never say, you know, I'm a hospice chaplain. Cause if you do, it's like the room goes silent, like EF <laughs> Hutton's talking and then people tilt their head and they look at you with big doe eyes, like your brother, Teresa. And I'm not, you know, I, my job is a one, I get to meet people when all the bullshit is just kicked out of them. And all the nonsense. Most ministers, by and large, have to put up with an enormous amount of nonsense. People are trying to pretend to believe something or to behave a certain way or to espouse something. But by the time I meet people, the nonsense is all kicked out of them by the disease, by the pain, by the, the knowledge that soon they will cease to exist. And so I get to have incredibly rich and meaningful and significant conversations with people that are facing their mortality. And many of them are afraid. And I get to just act like this is normal. We're in this together. It's going to be all right. We're going to help you get there to help them not be so afraid. What? If, and they pay me to do this, <laughs> which is so incredible to me that I get to do this. And, and I tease my other minister friends. I, I was a horrible pastor. When I was a pastor, I had no patience. I had no uh, grace for nonsense. And I tell my minister friends, you know, even the people I meet that I don't like, because you don't like everybody. I mean, there's some people that just annoy the hell out of you. So even the people I meet that I don't like, it's only for a month or two. I can outlast them. You know, I can be nice for a month or two. It's, this isn't going to be forever. I can do this. And so I'm sort of wired this way to, to go deep uh, for a short period of time and then surface. But, and, and so some of the people, the honest truth to your question, John, some of the people I visit, they want to talk about what it feels like dying because nobody will with them. They're, their families are terrified. Their friends don't know what to say. So they just want somebody, what's this like? And, and so because I've been doing this so long, and I actually did my doctoral work on existential distress at life's end, which sounds god-awful, but it's not. But anyway, um, so they know I've been doing this for a while. And I can honestly answer their questions in a way that doesn't freak anybody out, to just have a normal conversation about what it could be like, what's going on, you're okay. And then some people I meet are so tired of thinking about it. They're laying on their bed 24 seven thinking, what am I going to die? What am I going to, they want a vacation from it. So some people I play cribbage with or chess with, or will tell jokes to, or, you know, talk about sports. And so it doesn't matter to me. My goal when I go to visit a patient, a client is that the half hour or hour we spend together, their life is a little better because I showed up than if I hadn't. That's it. That's all I'm shooting for. And so if, if we can make that happen, that's awesome. And uh, so, yeah, I just try. I, I go. There's a Buddhist concept I like. It's called know nothing. So that when I show up, I don't want to come in with a bunch of preconceived ideas. Well, they need to work on this or they've got to do this. Who the, who the heck am I to tell anybody what they need to do? I just want to show up. I want to be a resource. I want to be compassionate. 
I want to be kind. I want to listen. And if there's anything I can do to help ease the journey, I'm all in. And uh, whatever that may call for on a certain day, sometimes it just means helping somebody change a brief because it's soiled and it's uncomfortable. Like I say, sometimes it's playing cribbage or sometimes it's just holding a hand and not saying anything for 45 minutes, just sitting there so they know somebody's there. And uh, so whatever's called for. You referred to yourself earlier as a religionaholic, um, which I can relate to. <laughs> uh, a lot of times people think that religion is simply a means of coping with mortality, um, that its only purpose is to guarantee you a eternal happiness or whatever, or, or you know, deal with what you call existential dread. Um, so... How much do you think your personal interest in religion, because the reason I ask this is I think that's actually more true of people who approach religion more academically than spiritually, because we nerds are into the very big questions. And one of those very big questions is the question of death, right? Right. Um, right. So, so how much do you think your relationship to religion and religious inquiry how much of it was shaped by your interest in death, right, from from whatever age? Um, and how has it evolved um, when actually dealing with death firsthand? Uh, my interest in religion had nothing to do with death early on. As I say, uh, I got into the depth of my religion experientially. I had an incredible experience with Jesus Christ. I, I was on a retreat weekend, a Catholic retreat weekend, and I had this incredible uh, experience that it's just hard to describe, but something inside of me erupted joyously. I felt love and acceptance like I never had, and it was just like there is a God, and this God loves me. And that was mind-blowing. It had nothing to do with death or the afterlife. or Because I didn't care. I was 19. I was trying to meet girls, for God's sake. I was fat. I was insecure. <laughs> I was naive. I, was try I went to the retreat trying to meet girls. That's the only reason I went. It had So I was apprehended by grace. And it radically changed. My, it was November 21st, 1971, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It was the most significant moment of my existence. I'll never forget it. And so that apprehended me. Now, since then, you know, I, I've, I've come to see, and I do think one of the main purposes, and there, I think there's several purposes of religion, of, of the major religions that I'm aware of, and, and trying to explain this experience of death what it means and what happens afterwards is part of that. I think that's part of what every religion tries to do. I think religions also try to tell us how to live in a way that um, fosters uh, security for the tribe and for the community and is appropriate for morals and uh, behavior. I think that's a, a, a main function 
of religion. And then I think you throw in the, the, all these people of various stripes and colors and facets have these incredible experiences. And so trying to make sense out of these experiences in the middle and give some context to it. I think that's a, another purpose of religion. But for me, any religion worth its salt, if at the end of the day, it doesn't help me practically become more compassionate, uh, grow in wisdom and have more equanimity or peace, then it's not worth it. What I expect out of my religion or any religion is to grow in equanimity, peace, uh, uh, wisdom, and compassion. I think that to me is, is the evidence of, a, of an authentic spirituality. And if that's missing, it's nothing I'm interested in. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, that's a great answer. And I love, well, it's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> let's, let's talk about then what are some of the specific um, insights or lessons that you have learned from, from uh, working so closely with the dying um, and, and witnessing death uh, firsthand. Um, again, I, I don't, like even watching medical dramas where people are right, dying, right? right? Um, I'm very, very skittish about this sort of thing. And so I would be very apprehensive to um, experience those, those, those kinds of lessons. But um, as, a, as someone who has gone into the field, um, what do you report back to people about the way that uh, sort of embracing this... Um, inevitable aspect of existence can change the way that you live life while you're alive. All right. So that's, that's really, I, I hear a, a two part question in that. That's really kind of loaded. Yeah, it's loaded. And, and, and it's a great question. Cause I, I think, look, why do I do podcasts? Why do I do my own little podcast? Why do I be a guest on? Because I feel I have a privilege to sit on the other side of the curtain that very few people ever get to see. Mm -hmm. And what good is it for me to learn all this incredibly rich and I think important and valuable things or stuff and nobody else ever learns about. So that's why I, I do this. And so that it's a great question for me. So here's to give you some context. Uh, context is really important here, John. So realize I live in Southern Oregon. So it's a somewhat of a rural, but not so much. I live halfway between the Bay Area and Portland. So if you travel I-5, I'm about five hours from either the Bay Area or Portland. Really, you know, the, the middle of nowhere. I like to say when you're escaping from California on I-5, I live in the town you come to. But, uh, and so in many of the, so this is a highly Caucasian area. All right. I rarely uh, in, in fact, in the last year, I, I maybe was with 300 different patients. Maybe two were African-American. Maybe one was Filipino and maybe one was Japanese. Everybody else Caucasian. So that's a, And the people I meet are in their uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and 100s. So I, I rarely do I see a child, you know, maybe once a year. And uh, so so given that context, many of the people I meet have at least had the shot 
at a decent life. Now, whether they had a good life or not, I can't say, but at least they had a, you know, they had some time and they had some opportunity. So that's the, the clientele that I meet. Being in Southern Oregon, many of the people here are non-religious. They're not churched. And so uh, that also comes into play for the people that I see, because people that are well-connected to a church, they don't want to see the hospice chaplain. Their own minister is coming, and that's great. They're supported. That's all I care about. So that's the context. Now, of those people, this may encourage you. I hope it does. I would say my experience, and it's anecdotal, but 3,000 or so is a good sample size. Um, well north of 95% are really ready when the end comes. They're at peace. They're ready. It's not death that freaks them out. It's dying. Mm -hmm. the, the thought of pain, the thought of how long is this going to last? In fact, I would say without question, the number one request for prayer that I get from patience is what's taken so long god just come and get me now i'm ready to go they can't drive anymore they can't work they can't watch tv they're laying in bed they're staring at a ceiling they're just waiting to not be the the emotion uh and psychology of all that is just wearing and they're ready to to just get on with it so that's well north of 95 percent when the when the real end end comes they're ready to go so hopefully you'll find that encouraging um, but in, in the process, the, the thing I've learned, uh, is that there are things that are important in preparation for the end, the end. And one of the ways I think about it, if you were going to take a trip to Europe or something, you know, you'd probably plan a couple of months ahead of time. You'd plan what kind of clothes you're going to take. What's the weather going to be like? What kind of currency do you need? What languages? You might even, you know, try and dabble a little bit and learn some key phrases. So you prepare for it. Well, I, I view death as a great adventure and, and it's one we're all going to take at some point. And so to prepare for it, I think is a, is a wise thing. And a lot of uh, philosophers throughout the centuries have, have said as much, and as well as theologians. And so what's boiled down to me, and in all of what I've learned in being with these dear folks that have admitted me entrance into their life at a, at a crucial time, is there's, there's four things that I'm really working on right now that I want to implement now while I still have time to prepare for my finitude when I come to be the person laying on the bed and some people are trying to come in and help take care of me. And they basically boil down to, to cultivating uh, gratitude, to becoming more generous, to accepting reality as it is, and to shower the people I love with love. And I know I stole that one from James. <laughs> I was going to say that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it does. But those are the things at the end, at the end, what really matters are those things. I, I just, I'm convinced after 15 years of doing this work, if I give myself to those four things for the rest of my days, then when death comes to collect me, he won't be sad and he will know that I learned what I needed to learn and I'll be ready for whatever comes next. But yeah, generosity, gratitude, accepting reality as it, as it is, not as I wish it to be or want it to be, not dwelling in the past, but really uh, accepting of the reality of life as it is right now and, 
and an ability to communicate to the people I love why it is I love them. You know, it's one thing, John, to say, oh, I love you. But if I can tell you why, Mm. what's what I see that's special and beautiful and unique in your life and in your character and in your wiring that makes you particularly lovable to me, that has power. And so I'm always trying to, to, as I meet people, listen to, to what it is that is so lovable about this person and then remind them of that. Cause most of us, we live in a world that tells us how rotten we are, how, how I'm not good enough. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I don't have the right degrees. I'm not, uh, I don't have the right color skin. I don't have, you know, I didn't do this. I, and we, we live in a world that's always telling us not enough, not enough, not enough. And I am always looking to find what is beautiful here that I can remind you of the beauty in your life, what's special and unique about you. If I can do that, then I think that's a good way to spend my time. Your, um, your website is called Meditations for Misfits. And um, I want to know why. What, what, <laughs> what, what, how does the word misfits fit in there? Um, what, are you, what are you trying to do with, uh, with that sort of outreach? All right, John, you've been talking to me for over 40 minutes. You have to ask me why I would appeal to misfits. <laughs> because I, I think there's a lot of people that don't fit right. in all the pre-construct, you know, the, the structured. Uh, there's a lot of people that feel like square pegs in a world of round holes. And, and so what do we do? Do we just give up? Do we stop? Do, or do we just sort of accept that we're square pegs and, What's good about that? And how can we grow into that? And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of folks questioning. You know, I think in postmodernity, the world we're living in, where so much of what we've been taught to believe is questioned right now, I think uh, being a misfit is not a bad thing. I, I think it goes to the core of being unique and individual. I, I would say, you know, for the technical terms, I would consider myself a Christian existentialist. And so I think misfits a good way to translate that. <laughs> that's a, that's a fair point. Yeah, I I, I I was more interested in what you consider a misfit to be. Um, in in you know, is that people who just don't find, uh, let's say, you know, mainstream or organized Christianity um, jives with them, or, or or whatever? Or maybe mainstream Buddhism doesn't jive with them anymore. <laughs> right. Or maybe you know, right. you know, we've read enough. We've been to the conferences. We got the T-shirts. The slogans are on the wall. But I still feel blah. I still feel empty. What's wrong? Well, maybe there's nothing. You know, just, you know, let's just breathe and learn to be nice. And maybe things will work out if, if we just strive to be a little kinder to ourselves and to others. And so, yeah, pre preconceived answers and slogans, I just, I don't have much truck with anymore. One of the people who figures heavily on your website, um, is is thomas merton oh is, yes is speaking of misfits and also oh, i mean yeah. somebody who is my favorite catholic uh you know it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like my favorite martian my favorite <laughs> tommy merton um talk to me about your relationship with with thomas merton i, I you know i never met merton till he died i you know merton died in 68 <laughs> yeah. merton died in 68 but i had started going to the abbey of gethsemane i grew up in west virginia and the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Merton lived, is in uh, 
uh, Trappist, Kentucky, which is an hour south of Louisville. And it was about seven hours from my home. And so early after my uh, initial experience with Jesus, a friend of mine told me about the place. So in 72 or 73, I started going to the Abbey. And I'd never heard of Thomas Merton before then. Um, and so I started, and when I got to the Abbey, they had all these books by Merton, 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 who's this? And then I started reading him and thought, my God, who is this guy? And I fell in love with him. And uh, because, you know, Merton, one of the things Merton has really taught me is he was terribly inconsistent. He would say in his journal, he would say, you know, one day Roki is the greatest poet in the 20th century. And then three days later, you know, Wilkie's a hack. I don't know why he ever got <laughs> you know? and, and so what I loved about Merton is he was just, he believed, the core belief of Tom Merton was that if he just writes everything about his life, his thoughts, his feelings, throw it down on paper, somehow he'll be able to sift through it and it'll make some sense. And so he tried to be as honest as he could. And I love that. And so I... Yeah, he just now. I'm a fan of the like the Beatles. I don't care for the early Beatles. I like the the later Beatles. I'm the same with Merton. I don't like the early Merton. Seven Story Mountain, Sign of Jonas. He's a pietistic convert to Catholicism. That you know, and uh, but the later stuff, my God, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander and the Asian Journal and some of his later stuff. Oh boy, so rich and so. So wonderful. His post uh, fourth and walnut experience in Louisville. After that experience, he really, he really, after he'd been in the monastery 20 years, he had a significant event that changed his life. And I, I connect with that, Merton. So there's got to be a, there's a connection there between later Beatles and later Merton. Yeah. That's yes. that I find, that I find really interesting. What does that say about you? Like what, what yeah. is it? Is it the do you do you like the um, the the ambiguity or the yes. the, uh, the the sort of audacity right, of 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 of, of that work um, that it that it reaches to to push boundaries? Um, is is that what it is? Is that the connection? Is that something that you find meaning in? Yeah, John, I think that's a that's a great insight. I, you know, uh, I, another one of my heroes that I love is Carl Gustav Jung, and Jung had his whole philosophy or theory of the first half and second half of life. Look, when I was a young man, when I was a Pentecostal preacher, I I had all the answers. People would invite me to come preach and to tell them uh, what God thinks, what God likes, how to become somebody God likes, because I had all the answers or thought I did. And in my later life, after going through the experience of my friend who died with AIDS, after going through a divorce, after going through a number of difficult experiences, I have many more questions than I have answers. And the questions have made me a kinder, more compassionate human being. And it's the mystery that attracts me. It was the mystery that attracted Merton. I don't want the answers. I don't like talking to diehard Calvinists or uh, Dominican <laughs> priests that follow, you know, uh, Aquinas, uh, Thomas Aquinas, because they have it all figured out. It's the mystery that attracts me. I don't want to figure it out. I'm attracted by the the unknowing, and uh, that's what what softens me and has made me, to be honest, John, just a, a kinder, 
a, a, a better human being. But it, when we're young, we need the answers to life. How do I, what am I supposed to do? What job am I supposed to get? Where, what kind of person am I supposed to be? So in that first half of life, according to Carl Jung, you know, we need those answers. They're helpful, but then life beats the crap out of us and we realize the answers don't always work and it softens us up for the second half of life. And so I think that, you know, that's certainly where I feel I am. Yeah. I, so I love the mystery and the questions and the not knowing and the ambiguity. There's a Zen line I love. If it's not paradoxical, it is not true. I like that. <laughs> Last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go, and this is, uh, you know, get, getting to where you are in life right now. Um, I know you've talked a little bit about your sort of anxiety about retiring and not wanting to do that. And yeah, yeah. Being, being 69 years young. and um, It doesn't you feel about, young. Johnny, don't <laughs> feel young, brother. I, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being nice. Um, <laughs> as you uh, look forward to the next, you know, stage of your life, um, what do you what do you hope to get out of it? And, and has and has you know seeing people at the end of their life um, helped you kind of contextualize that in, in any in any way, or, or rethink you know what you want from from the rest of your life? I've been reading a lot uh, recently. I'm reading the Tao Te Chung again right now, and I'm reading uh, Suzuki's uh, Zen Mind Beginner Mind, and I'm reading conjectures of a guilty bystander again all books i've read i'm rereading and i like to read uh disparate kinds of vo books at the same time and see if a common theme emerges and i listen to that that's just one of my spiritual practices and the ones i'm reading right now are all about not having a big agenda i don't want to be attached to a lot of outcomes i don't look i don't need to go I don't need to become a famous writer. I don't need to become, I don't need to be anything. I just want to be me. I want to be nice. I want to be nice to the person I'm sitting across from whenever I'm sitting across from them. And that's about the end of it. You know, I, as I'm, we just moved into a new house. Uh, another crazy thing that happened my, and last year in the Almeida wildfires, everything I own burned oh in, in an hour. And so we just moved into a new house. And so I'd like to maybe do a little bonsai plants or just why I don't have anything to prove. I, I don't need to impress anybody. I don't want to. I just want to be really nice to whoever it is I'm with. I want to feel connected to the divine. I My new name for God is the source. I like that. That's that's kind of a cool thing. I like I'm that's out of uh, the Tao Te Chung, yeah. out of the source. You know, I want to connect with the source. I want to be really nice to my wife. I want to treat my dog well. I want to be a good neighbor. And, you know, I'll do what I can. And if, you know, a door opens where you should come do this, I'll come do that if it feels right. And if I just, I'm not attached to, there's not a lot that I got to do. But realize now, and this isn't fair, that really is coming from, uh, look, I realize I am a white man in North America. So I've had a lot of privilege and I've been able to do a lot of things. And I've had innumerable opportunities to do things that many people on this planet never had. So it's not fair. You know, I, I'm not trying to say that that's better or holier or more spiritual. I just had all that and it wasn't incredibly satisfying. And so... I'm dialing it way down. Well, this has been really insightful, and um, I'm I'm glad I 
<laughs> decided to talk to you. <laughs> I don't feel better about death. I don't think I'm ever going to. I don't know. But, um, you know, I'm also at a uh, Go visit a thousand folks or so that are dying. Uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll change. It'll soften you. Brother, I'm, trust me. I'm sure it will. Um, right now, I'm trying to raise three kids and, and yeah, all, yeah. The, all, that, all that stuff. So yeah. before you go, uh, would you like to tell people where they can find out more about you? Oh, if they're so inclined. Uh, my webpage is pretty easy. It's just fredgruy.com, www.fredgruy.com. And uh, I have a little uh, podcast I do. It's about a 10-minute-a-week thing. I just sort of ramble on the things I think are important. I don't have any guests. I just, because I, I technically don't know how to do two people at the same time. I can just, <laughs> I can plug in my thing and do it. Yeah. And so it's called Meditations, the number four and Misfits. And it's on iTunes and Spotify and iHeart and that stuff. And I even have a book that I wrote a couple of years ago that I really am proud of. I, it's What the Dying Have Taught Me About Living. And it's on Amazon. And so so that's, uh, yeah, if anybody's inclined, that's how you get get into Fred World. Well, it's been a fun time in Fred World. Uh, thank you, Fred, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. John, it has been an absolute delight. I, I hope your students enjoy you as much as I have. I Seriously, um, been a delight. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Shower the people you love with love. I mean to say to you, shower the peace.